AEC, ACC, A Sun, A10, Big E, Big Sky. Yo, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the March Only Podcast. As the name implies, this is a podcast that takes place in the month of March only. I am your host, Troy Macker, as always. And remember that this podcast is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. I am imploring you to like, share, subscribe, rate, favorite, all of that. I got kids to feed. Okay, no, I, I, I don't. I don't have any kids. I don't have any pets. But like, I would like you to like and share. That will make my job better. So please, just help me out. Today is really cool because we have John Feinstein, who I've gotten to know working here at NBC Sports Washington and growing up in the D.C. area. is a longtime columnist. He's a New York Times bestselling author. And he knows the history of college basketball more than just about everyone. And there's a lot of tournament stuff to get to, but I think the best place to start with John is obviously in the past because that's where he has really, he's gotten a chance to cover national championship games and teams, historic teams. So we're going to get a chance to pick his brain and talk hoops for 30 minutes or so. And without further ado, let's podcast. Working in preseason, ready for a chance. Working in this season, ready for the dance. Ready for tip off, ready for tip off, ready for tip off. All right, today's guest is none other than John Feinstein, longtime columnist, New York Times bestselling author. And there's a lot of tournament stuff to get to, but when we have a person like John Feinstein, it's a great opportunity to pick his brain on history because that's what's made March Madness so great. And so what I want to start with is, is there a singular moment that stands out to you when someone mentions March Madness? And maybe it's hard to do that because there's so many. For me, it's become Florida Gulf Coast versus Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are endless possibilities. Is there one or two that, for specific reasons, always stands out to you? Well, there's more than one or two, Troy. It really is hard to, because I first covered the NCAA tournament in 1977 when I was a college senior. So that's how far back I go. And I, I remember Bo Ellis from Marquette that year in the championship game blocking Bruce Buckley's shot with a score tied, and Dean Smith had gone to the four corners, and Marquette came down the court, scored, and uh, Carolina never caught up again, and people uh, felt that that was Dean Smith's worst loss ever. And Marquette has won the national championship. That was Dean Smith who came down. McGuire choked up. It wasn't, though. The loss to Indiana in 1984 yeah. with Michael Jordan was probably his worst loss ever. Uh, obviously, I remember Christian Leitner's shot against Kentucky. There's the pass to Leitner. Puts it up. Yes! Uh, I remember Villanova against Georgetown in 1985. Gary McLean breaking the press uh, and, and Eddie Pinckney being able to stand up to Patrick Ewing. Uh, I remember Jim Valvano literally running right by me in his famous circle of the yeah. court in the pit in New Mexico uh, after Lorenzo Charles's dunk. Um, and more recently, uh, the, the ending of the Duke Carolina game, uh, Duke Carolina, uh, Freudian slip, the Villanova <laughs> Carolina game two years ago, um, you know, the, 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 the shot at the buzzer uh, that was clearly good. Um, and, and, and then uh, some, some first-round memories from first-round upsets. Uh, the first 15 to ever beat a two. Uh, was Richmond in 1991 beating Syracuse yeah. as a two. You've just seen history. And the darlings of America from three years ago, the Richmond Spiders, rekindle their love affair. It was in College Park in Coalfield House. What I remember about that night is the day before, uh, I, was writing, I was working for the National Sports Daily at the time, with the ill-fated National wow. Sports Daily. And I was asked to write a piece ranking the eight best game coaches in the tournament and the eight worst 
Mm-hmm. I picked Knight as the best game coach. I picked Dick Tarrant from Richmond as second. <laughs> and I picked Jim Beheim as the worst game coach, which was probably really unfair. Yeah. But it just seemed like the thing to do. Jim at that point, had, had he'd been to one Final Four, one national championship game. But he was easy to pick on. And, and Jim came up to me uh, in the press conference on Wednesday at the practices and screaming at me, you know, that's totally unfair. I'm a very good bench coach, blah, blah, blah. And the next night after Richmond beat him, he walked up to me in the, in the press conference sometime after midnight and said, you know what really pisses me off about this? Now people are going to think you know something about basketball. And it just shows that Jim has a sense of humor. Yeah. And he and I have since become very good friends. Uh, I disagree with him a lot, but uh, he's the kind of guy who you can disagree with, you can criticize, and he doesn't hold a grudge. Yeah. Much like Lefty Drizel was. Yeah. Um, but so those are some of the memories that come to mind right away. That's not exactly one or two. No, no, but that there's an endless pool to, to choose from. And and Beheim is really interesting because growing up in this area, very easy to hate. He's right. kind of the the arch nemesis of Georgetown. But having gotten to cover Big East tournaments and Big East games, I, going to watch a Syracuse game is more than just a game. Being able to watch him in press conferences and interact <laughs> with guys like yourself and Andy Katz, uh, who've who've you know riled him up before, and he's him and the Calhouns and the Patinos of the world, the the great quotes. Is there one coach, and you've gotten a chance to know coaches at a very personal level? Is there mm-hmm. one who you enjoy just sitting down and talking to because of the stories they told? Who's the one or the two for you? Yeah, it's hard to narrow it down. Uh, the difference between uh, Andy Katz and me is that Beheim likes me. <laughs> he really despises Andy Katz, and understandably, if you know Andy Katz. Uh, but uh, for very different, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Legends Club that was about Mike Krzyzewski, Dean Smith, and Jim Valvano, all of whom I covered in the 80s uh, as a beat reporter at The Post. And I love dealing with all three of them in completely different ways. Valvano was the single funniest guy. I ever knew. Great storyteller, great joke teller. And I would sit with him in his office till three, four, five in the morning. Uh, and he would stretch out on the couch there and just talk. And he was as smart as anybody I knew and, and really entertaining. Dean, on the other hand, was challenging yeah. because he never gave you anything for free. Everything was work with him. He'd ask you why you were asking a question. What was the point? And, and um, I had a great relationship with him, but it was always very competitive. And Krzyzewski is as thoughtful as anybody I've met. Mike will never, you, if you ask him a question, you never get a quick answer. He'll stop and he'll think about it. Yeah. And, and more, as much as anybody I've ever dealt with in sports, he will say things to me that I haven't thought of. You know, I'll ask him about a particular issue and he'll bring something up I haven't thought of. And that doesn't happen very often. Um, Mike Messina was the same way in baseball. Really? Uh, Rory McIlroy is the same way in golf. Huh. The other day, I know we're talking basketball, but the other day I was talking to Rory McIlroy and I said, some, I said something about one of the things about golf is no matter how old you get, you're always still learning, aren't you? Yeah. He said, isn't that the way life is? And I, yeah, of course it is. He's 100% right. Yeah. Krzyzewski's like that. So th- those three come to mind right away. But Roly Massimino, was, he was just so much fun because, again, he was always in your face and giving you a hard time. And I'll never forget after they beat Georgetown in that game, you don't want to remember, <laughs> 1985, uh, in the locker room, he said to me, you're coming home with us on the plane because I'd covered them all through the tournament. You're coming back to Philly with us on the plane. And, of course, I said yes. Yeah. Got up at 5 in the morning, was on the plane. I was in the parade. That's right. I was I, yes. literally in the parade. Um, and I hid behind Ed Pinckney the whole time. My friend Dick Weiss, uh, Philly guy, very close yeah. to Rolly, who was on the plane too, 
uh, was waving to people. I hid behind Eddie Pinckney, but that was still one of my great thrills in basketball. That that game is, for obvious reasons, as being a Georgetown fan, it's hard to swallow. But the how it happened, shooting whatever the percentage 79. was. 79.3 for the game, 9 for 10 in the second half. It was the last game played without a clock. Really? Yes, and that's why Rowley was able to control the tempo. And when Gary McClain was able, remember, they played Georgetown twice already, yep. both competitive games. And when Gary McClain was able to handle the press, and he's taken a lot of crap the last 30 years because of his admission that he was doing drugs during that period. But he was brilliant that night, uh, and they made it a half-court game. And in a half-court game, they were able to compete with him, and, and Harold Jensen had the night of his life, five yep. for five. Pinckney was great. Both McClains were great. Uh, and and it, it was the perfect game. They pulled off the perfect game. And, and, and it, it tells you how good Georgetown was that Villanova shot 79% and won by two. Yeah. At what point in that game did you start to realize Villanova can do this? Or Halftime. Really? Halftime. Because I think the score was tied. It was either score, tied or 31-30. And on the last play of the half, um, uh, there, was a, there was a skirmish under, under the basket. And uh, you could tell Georgetown was frustrated. They, they, they thought they had blown out St. John's in the semis. Yeah. And they thought they were going to blow Villanova out, too, because they were playing so well. Yeah. They seemed to be on a roll. And there, there was this little skirmish under the basket, and the players kind of squared off, and the refs got in between. Nothing really happened. But I remember as they went off court at halftime, Villanova thinks it can win, and Georgetown thinks it can lose. And that didn't mean it was going to happen yeah. that way, but it meant there was a chance. Yeah. And in a you know, one-game setting, you know, Confidence right. is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Villanova believed it could win. And you see that at all levels. Uh, just last weekend when uh, UMBC went up to play Vermont, and Vermont had dominated the conference and yep. beaten UMBC twice easily. Badly, But yeah. they thought, 40 minutes, we have a chance. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. And so we've talked about UMBC, and that's a great segue into this year's field, is we've talked about UMBC Ryan Odom has done a great job. I mean, they were 7-23 two years ago. This well, they, they'd won. This is the stat. That tells you everything you need to know, Troy. In the seven years before Ryan Odom got hired, they won 41 games. Ooh. In the last two, they've won 45. Yeah. So that tells you all you need to know about the job he's yeah. done. And while the A East is not the world's greatest no. conference, it's been top heavy with Vermont, Albany, and Stony Brook. Yeah. And for exactly. them to be not just in the championship game, but beating Vermont at Vermont. Right. Now they get Virginia, who is a an odd team to uh predict in a tournament setting and we always say 16 seed will is will eventually beat a one seed it will maybe not in my lifetime <laughs> yeah is and i i can't quantify it because you know it, i'm not a huge metrics guy i like to look at them but there's not nothing that really stands out but having watched umbc play and kind of knowing virginia's profile is there any chance like that this is the year it happens it's hard to predict and you don't want to predict that but how would you how confident are you to in UMBC to them to make it a game? If they can hit their threes, because they have they have four good three point shooters on the floor at almost all times, uh, they can make it a game. Now the thing is, what Virginia does with that pack line defense, the, the the most effective way to make three point shots in today's game is to get in the paint, draw the defense, yeah. and kick it. You can't do that against Virginia. You nope. can't get in the lane, and so they're going to have to set a bunch of high ball screens which you're not necessarily used to doing because yeah. they're, they're more used to K.J. Moore, their little point guard who's great, getting in the lane and setting up shooters. Uh, so I think it, it, it's, it's, it's a tough, tough deal. But 
if Jarris Lyles, if K.J. Mora, if Joe Sherburn, if Arkell Lamar can hit three-point shots, they can, they can hang around. But I think eventually inside, because that's not UMBC's strength, yeah. Virginia will wear them down, which is what they do to most teams. Yes, even the teams at the highest level. Exactly. And, and they are the best team in the country right now. They're the number one overall seed. I, just, I struggle to think that they can advance a long ways because how important pace of play is in the tournament. You get down big, you need to get back. I'll never forget when Syracuse mounted that comeback. Syracuse was daring them to do, go on fast breaks, and Virginia couldn't do right. it. Right. How concerned are you that Virginia is going to hit a snag somewhere because a team with talent is just going to run past them? Well, more concerned now with DeAndre Hunter yeah. out uh, because he is probably their most athletic player. And if you're going to face pressure, uh, if you're going to uh, uh, face a team that's going to push the, push the pace as much as it possibly can, and it's hard to do against Virginia, uh, Hunter is, is a key guy. Hunter's a key guy, period. Uh, but having said that, I think that th- this Virginia team, because it's been in a lot of close games yeah. due to the way it plays, I don't think they'll panic. For I don't know why that that Virginia team panicked against Syracuse. I ne- I don't think I've ever seen a Tony Bennett team play like that. Yeah. They're up sixteen. Bayheim's desperate. Comes out of the zone, uh, presses mm-hmm. full court, and all of a sudden Vir- Virginia looks like Pittsburgh. Yeah, and uh, it, it was shocking to me, frankly, and I'm sure it's shocking to Tony Bennett. I would think that they'll be better equipped to handle that. Uh, should it occur this year? Now, what 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 would make me nervous is, in assuming they get to the Sweet 16, they're going to play Kentucky or Arizona, and those are two very athletic teams yep. that will attack and won't worry about turning the ball over. Because the one thing about Virginia is you don't have to worry that much about turnovers because they don't lead to fast breaks most of the time. Yeah. So they'll attack, and you saw what Kentucky Kentucky's been able to do to teams like West Virginia, uh, who are athletic yeah, yeah. and play good defense. So. That round of 16 matchup would make me nervous, especially with Hunter now out. Yeah, and so, you know, you, you mentioned Kentucky and that, that region or that pod is really interesting. And you earlier you mentioned kind of the X's and O's coaches, best in the tournament, worst in the tournament. When I look at like a, a matchup that I think is intriguing but also has a disparity in coaching, it's John Calipari and Bob McKillop. Does John mm-hmm. Calipari, is, is he a better in-game coach than people give him credit for? Can Bob McKillop out-coach Cal to a win? Unlikely. Um, uh, I, I still remember years ago when uh, when Princeton almost beat Georgetown yep. in that famous game in yep. 1989, and I was on Sports Reporters that Sunday, and Dick Schaap said to me, uh, did Pete Carrill out-coach John Thompson Friday night? I said, of course he did, but he out-coaches everybody. <laughs> and Bob McKillop's much the same way. He just out-coaches yep. people. That's why he's been at Davidson so successfully for 29 years. Um, but I, I think that Calipari does a very good job of getting his players to buy into the idea of playing defense. Mm-hmm. He's done a much better job with it this year than Mike Krzyzewski has with the kids at Duke. Yeah. Uh, now, in-game, if the game gets close, I'd like, I would like Bob McKillop's chances. It reminds me, again, 100 years ago um, when um, Tate's Locke was clo- coaching at Clemson, wow. and they were in a game against Maryland. And he said to his players, get me to the last two minutes even, and I'll outcoach that SOB, meaning lefty. Uh, if, if, if the game's even with two minutes left to play, 
Davidson's got a hell of a chance. Yeah. It, it, it's getting to those last two minutes. It'll be difficult. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know uh, what happened in the A10 title game. They they were up in Rhode Island, came st- storming back, and it was it was over. It, Rhode Island had way too much momentum, and there was 120 seconds left, and Davidson won the last 120 seconds. And Bob McKillop's done that a lot in his career. Yeah, a lot of coaches. Danny Hurley's a really good coach, and yet they were able to find a way to win that game. Yeah. So when I look at this bracket. I'm not super impressed. I don't know if it's – I don't think it's because of the teams that didn't make it, but I feel like there are a lot of teams that – some of the matchups just aren't great. Like mm-hmm. Arizona and Kentucky will be fantastic if it happens. Right. What are your thoughts on the bracket? How excited are you for some of these matchups? You We're know, all excited for the tournament. I, I think there there are some intriguing matchups. I think the committee, as usual, blew it. Yeah. Um, I, I think if you put 10 cats in a room, they're just, <laughs> just as capable of picking the field. Um. But I don't know why Syracuse is in the tournament. I don't. I know why Oklahoma's in the tournament. Trey Young. Uh, I, I'm not sure why Arizona State's in the tournament. And I've known Bobby Hurley since 1988. But I don't know why they're in the tournament. But there are Rhode Island, Oklahoma is a very intriguing first game yeah. on Thursday in Pittsburgh. Uh, Rhode Island's a very good team. They've had a very good year. Can they control Trey Young? If they control Trey Young, they're going to win the game. Yeah. And then I think they, they'd have a chance to beat Duke. Yeah. I, I I really do. I think I think and of course. Danny Hurley being the younger brother of Bobby versus Shashevsky is a good TV matchup yeah. uh, for CBS or TBS or whomever has that game. Um, there, you know, if Michigan and and Carolina get to the Sweet 16 against one another, I think that'll be a hell of a game. Yeah. Uh, the last time they met in the Sweet 16 was 1989, and Glenn Rice went off, um, and when they Michigan went on to win the national championship, hasn't won one since. Um, Carolina, of course, is a very tournament-tested team. Yes. You're going to have to beat them. You're going to have to stick the, the the wooden stake through their heart yeah. to beat them. And that's why Carolina almost always is. Uh, you, you can get them down 20, and you'll look up a minute later, and they're down two. Dean Smith did that a million times. Roy Williams does it too. So those are, those are some pretty I- intriguing matchups. I'm always intrigued by those 116 matchups. You, because I, I love to watch the kids yeah. on on the sixteen and the sixteen seated team. Gonzaga and Southern going back and forth here in Salt Lake City. Because I I still remember when Navy played North Carolina in nineteen ninety eight, and Satafa Savani was Navy center, and he said when he walked to midcourt to shake hands with Antoine Jameson to <laughs> jump jump, he said he didn't know whether to shake his hand or ask for his autograph. Because he'd seen them on TV so much. Yeah. And for these 16-seated teams, there's a lot of that involved. I mean, how many times have they seen Villanova on TV or Virginia on TV or Xavier on TV um, or Kansas on TV? So those matchups always intrigue me. And I'm, I'm also very curious to see how Xavier does as a yes. one seed. And, and the, other, the team that I'm watching, because I think they're very underseeded and, and they're a, a compelling story because of all that's gone on, is Michigan State. Yeah. Because with everything that happened at that school, People are acting like Tom Izzo was Larry Nasser's best friend. Uh, the only time he ever met Larry Nasser was when he went to a hospital to see a gymnast, a Michigan State gymnast who'd been paralyzed. And Nasser w- w- was there when, when he walked into the, uh, to the hospital room. And yet people want to connect him somehow to every crime that's ever been committed in the history of mankind. <laughs> yeah. And this is supposed to be Izzo's month. Just pencil him into, the, been, su- yeah. Yeah. Pencil him into the Sweet 16. And his... The his appearance in the media has taken a hit because of this. Right. Uh, I don't. Th- I don't think that will impact 
what happens. At well, all. it didn't. I mean, this all started in January, yeah. and they promptly won 12 in a row yeah. before they lost to Michigan, a very good team, obviously, in, in the Big Ten tournament. So, no, if, if anything, when stuff like this happens, whether the criticism is justified or not, teams tend to come closer together. Yeah. It becomes us against the world, and that's not a terrible situation for a coach to be in. No, no, especially when you are a high-seeded team that, you know, when you play a 15 – you may not be going hard because you're looking at the potential for the next game. Yeah. And so any I always find it weird when there's a, a 2C that says no one believed in us, but if it works for you, say it and do it. Well, the all-timer to me was in 2009 when North Carolina won the national championship, and in the locker room afterwards their players were saying, nobody gave us a chance to do this. They were ranked number one the whole season. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of North Carolina, Duke, they have Mar- Marvin Bagley, who is unstoppable if you give him the ball in the low block. Mm-hmm. He's it doesn't even look like he's trying very hard. He gets around everyone. They have Grayson Allen, who hate him, love him, could end the tournament as one of uh, with one of the the best like scoring records four years in NCAA tournament. They say defense wins championships. Duke doesn't play any defense, but if you look at NCAA champions, not a lot of defensive first teams, like high end defense teams, winning the championships. Is is Duke too flawed on defense to to I win six games? I, I really think they are. Uh... You know, there are nights when Bagley is is interested and when Grayson Allen is shooting well from outside, when they're unbeatable. Yeah. You know, if, if that happens in a game, they're not losing that game. I don't think they can do that six straight games. Yeah. Uh, now, I didn't think they could do it six straight games in 2015, and they did. But the difference in that team was they had Quinn Cook, who was a senior. Mm-hmm. They had Emil Jefferson, who was a fifth-year senior. They, they even had the youngest of the Plumleys, Marshall, who came in at a critical time in yep. the national championship game uh, when, when – um, when they were in foul trouble, yep. and gave them nine really important minutes. Grayson Allen's their only senior, and the rest of the guys who play play basically are freshmen, other than Bolden, who's a sophomore. So, and and Mike Shishovsky playing zone tells you that he doesn't believe in his team defensively. Yeah, and even going back to Duke's national championship in two thousand nine, ten, two thousand ten, Brian Zubek, who was a you know a senior center who was good, he was. Pivotal and them winning that game. He made the, he made the biggest defensive play of the game because he got out and got a hand up on on. Um, I'm blocking on the the name of the the kid who's with the Celtics. Oh, uh, Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward. I was blocking his name for some reason, but Hayward had what looked like an open shot from the corner when they were down one. Zubek got out, forced him to change the shot, then turned and got the rebound. Yeah. Got fouled, made the first, and then of course Shishovsky told him to intentionally miss the second, and that almost led to the Gordon Hayward miracle. Yeah, and. Your stars get you there, but it's really the intangibles um, that will win you a championship. And so it's having that, which team are you the most confident in? Maybe not the best team, but the team you have the most confident in winning the national championship. Well, again, I would have said until an hour ago, I would have said DeAndre Hunter, uh, not DeAndre, Virginia with DeAndre Hunter. Uh, But with him hurt, I think that does change their team. Uh, Looking through the bracket, I, I had Michigan State in the final. So I might just stick with Michigan State and, and instead of Virginia, but Villanova's really good. They are when they're not. People forget. I mean, they they lost some games in conference, but they were hurt. Yeah, you know, they had two key guys out for a while, just as Notre Dame had two key guys out and should have gotten in the tournament, but didn't. But uh, I, I, Villanova, Michigan State, um, Virginia, if they can deal with Hunter's absence. But the thing about this year is Troy. It's it's like the last few years. There's going to be a team or two in the Final Four that. I'll, I haven't given any thought to. Yeah, they'll they'll just, they'll just show up. It, it, you know, it could be Kentucky, although I've given thought to them. Um, it could be Arizona just to upset the NCAA. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it could be a, it could be a team like Tennessee. Yeah, you know where Rick Barnes has done a tremendous job. So that's what makes it fun. Absolutely, that's what makes it great, and that's what made this great is having you on, and really appreciated you taking some time and hearing some stories because that's really what this event is all about. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Troy, for having me. Enjoyed it. All right, that was a lot of fun having John Feinstein on. He tells stories about things I only got a chance to watch highlights of and read about in newspapers and really stuff that built the foundation of my college hoops fandom. And like any great history lesson, history is told by stories. And so to have him tell stories is just awesome because March Madness is great because of the upsets, because of the people, because of the buzzer beaters. But there are years and decades of great games, great people who we forget about. So to have John on and talk about that is just just awesome. Again, thanks for listening. And as always, shout out to producer Tim Chovers, who's editing all the podcasts to make me sound a little bit better than I am. Um, I'm already pretty great, so getting up from there is hard. But uh, shout out to Tim Chovers. If you need anyone to edit podcasts, holler at me, holler at Tim Chovers, because he can get it done. The tournament is literally almost here. I'm so jacked. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the March Only Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Let's tip it off. It's college hoops time. NCAA team stand on the ground, all sweat, no pain. Homie, we want more. Lock up, loose bomb, and we diving on the floor. Working in preseason, ready for a chance.